0: Welcome to Sonics Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonics Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight podcast. This is episode number 45, UL Power Engines. One thing builders love is having many engine options to choose from. UL Power has been supplying engines in the 100 horsepower range for several years now, and they're really starting to gain traction as a Sonics power plant. We'll speak with the U.S. distributor for UL Power engines, and we'll hear all about the features and operation of this intriguing engine option. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me are my two good flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. John Gillis is best known for his custom touches on his YX, including his famous speed cowl, his tilt-back canopy, and his toe brakes. And coming up soon, his Antarctic B-model conversion. John, you're leaving soon, aren't you?
1: Yeah, we leave, uh, I leave for New Zealand in uh, a week from tomorrow, and I won't be back until after Thanksgiving. So, What Jeff was saying was I need to take a part of my B-model down there so I can manufacture it in Antarctica. So that I can have the first Antarctic Sonics.
0: Yeah, and so think about this, John. You're going to be parked on the flight line at AirVenture, and lots of airplanes have that little map of the U.S. and they've got little states like colored in on where they've flown to. You're going to have a map of Antarctica, and that's going to be like covered in there. Like, hey, I've been to Antarctica. I not only did I fly in there, I built my plane in Antarctica, and, and I yeah, may have I'll flown it,
1: it, flown a part of it in a drone, so it might have flown in Antarctica.
0: <laughs>
2: we have a reverse rotating engine you could put on it and say it's from the southern hemisphere.
0: <laughs> 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 All right, well, uh, definitely we're going to get regular progress updates on uh, on the Antarctic B model, so we'll be watching that closely. And Gary Motley. Gary is a longtime pilot. He's a former CFI and he's a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how you doing?
3: Doing well, doing well. Got more airplane parts in a day, so I'm looking forward to the weekend.
0: Good. That's a good way to spend a weekend—is uh, working in the shop.
3: Yeah. The thing about Robert's little comment there about that counter-rotating engine, uh, I can see now that John's going to be mesmerized just standing there at the toilet, <laughs> wondering why the
0: water's going backwards. <laughs> These are important mysteries, and it's good that we have a science team that's going to Antarctica to solve them. Yep. <laughs> Well, in case uh, anybody hasn't put this together, uh, our UL Power Show, our guest this episode is Robert Helms. He is the manager of UL Power North America. He's the US importer for this line of engines. So, Robert, why don't you why don't we start this topic off by tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to become associated with UL Power, and then tell us a little bit about UL Power and kind of bring us up to the point where we are now. And then and then we'll get into the details of the engine.
2: Well, I'm a, well, thanks for having me. This is awesome. I, I'm, I'm just like unbelievably fortunate. I was born into airplanes. My dad was with Cessna when I was real young, and I, the first plane I ever started was a push pull when I was like four years old. And we lived in El Salvador in Central America, and he was a Cessna distributor down there, and so just all sorts of airplane stuff. And then we came back to the U.S., and he worked for Learjet, and so I was in you know, elementary school, flying around the world to our countryside in their jets. And then he got into Gulfstreams and Boeing business jets. And he put me through law school and I got a job doing aviation law in downtown Los Angeles. And then I went from there, I got into high tech and moved up to Silicon Valley. And I got really lucky. I retired when I was 39. And after a couple of years, I moved to Missouri. I bought a resort and I was just sitting around and contacted Sebastian Hines of Zenith Aircraft and said, hey, I'm bored out of my mind. and you need any help with your airplane business? He said, no, you know what I want to do, though? I want to put all Power engines on my airplanes, but nobody's importing them to the U.S. If you import them to the U.S., I'll do a firewall forward kit, and we can sell some engines. And so the next day I went and met with him, and we started doing it. And that was about seven or eight years ago, and we're having a blast. It's a lot of fun.
0: Well, that's that's pretty early on. Uh, you were probably one of the, the very first people to, to get a look at UL Power I'm not sure when they f- delivered their first engine, but it can have been more than seven or eight years ago, right?
2: Well, this, the company, the, the the way the company started was in 2002 in Europe. The, uh, one of the owners of UL Power is a company called DR Tuning, and they're famous in Europe for their race car engines. And uh, they do the big races like Paris to Dakar, you know, the road rally races. And a helicopter company went to them and said, hey, we got this engine for a helicopter. We can't get off the ground. Can you?" Can you get more power out of it. So they took the engine, put on the dyno, and tested it and modified it and took it from 80 horsepower to 95 horsepower. And the guy, helicopter guy said, that's great. I'm going to go buy 80 engines. You can modify them for me, and I'll, I'll pay you. And they, the DR tuning guy said, no, don't do that. We can design a brand-new engine for you. This new technology is lighter, has more power for less money. And so that's how they got started in 2002. The first engine was ready in 2003. 2003. But the helicopter company was out of business, and so they had this product, and they didn't know what to do with it. So they went to Aero Friedrich Hoffman and realized there was a, a need for it. So by 2006, they got together with their their suppliers, their metal supplier. So another one of the owners of UL Power Engines is a company that does all the machining for for uh, the, the steel machining. They make the cylinders. And then yet another company does all the aluminum. And then the fourth owner, there's four four principles in UW power the fourth one is just an investor and so they're somewhat vertically integrated and so almost the whole engine is machined and it's almost all machined in-house and so they're able to keep the cost down and they can make production changes as fast as they can change it on the computer the design they can change you know the next product you know coming out of the, the machining out of the manufacturing line so they they're real quick to make improvements and things so that part's nice and as a result with all the aluminum parts and the machining Just using, uh, as an example, the cylinder heads, because they're able to machine them, and they're made out of aluminum, they can make the cooling fins a lot thinner and a lot longer, so there's a lot more surface area. So in 2006, they created UL Power Aero Engines and started going to more shows. And when I started, there was about three engines already in the U.S., and the guys were having a little bit of trouble because it was tough for them to get service and support. And so... Fairly quickly, we ramped up, and we've probably got about 300 engines in the U.S. now and about 1,000 engines worldwide. So the, hmm. the growth has been good.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, um, let's let's do it like this. Um, let's start off with an overpower of the UL engine line, the four- and six-cylinder engine, and then maybe go into some of the features, and then we'll start getting into the Sonic-specific type stuff. So tell us about the the family of engines that UL makes.
2: The very first engine that I mentioned, they, they were targeting 95 horsepower, and their experience with the race car engines was uh, was all FADEC. And so their focus was multi-point fuel injection, which is awesome because it gives you uh, the right amount of fuel at the right place at the right time. So you, you look at the CHC and EGT on the Dynon or whatever avionics you got, and they're straight across. It's awesome. And if there's any issues, you can see pretty quickly, you know if it's cylinder specific, you know, it's usually the injector. And so with the multipoint fuel injection, you got each cylinder is burning cleaner. It's more efficient. uh, So theoretically, there should be less maintenance and uh, longer time between overhaul. And it it just burns a lot cleaner. So that part's nice. And then um, they went from the 95 horsepower to 2.6 liter. And the numbers of our engines stand for the displacement. So the 2.6 liter is a 260. And the 260i, the I stands for fuel injection, and then they wanted to go more more power, so they went to a little bit higher compression just by changing the cylinder and then the mapping on the ECU to give it more fuel. They created the 260is, which is the exact same engine, different piston, different software, it takes it to 107 horsepower. The negative, the difficult thing is some states in the U.S., the 260is requires 93 octane, and it's a little bit difficult to find 93 octane you can use hundred low lead, but the lead, like with lots of engines, causes problems. after about 400 hours, with no other sort of treatment, you'll start to get lead buildup on the exhaust valve, and it can cause you know, loss of loss of compression. And but it's easy to fix. the uh, The heads pull off real easy, and you can clean it up and put it back together if you need to. You can change the exhaust valve. So after the 260 is, they decided they wanted more power, so they put a turbocharger on it, and they got great power. But they realized the weight goes up the temperature goes up incredibly the customer service phone calls are going to go up dramatically and it's just a lot more complex so they did some thinking and instead they decided to take the turbo off they increased the stroke and they went to three and a half liters so they took the very same engine widened it three and a half inches increased the stroke and they made it three and a half liters and they took it up to 118 and 130 horsepower, respectively. So the I, 350i is 118, the 350is is 130 horsepower, and everything else, any components are identical. The injectors, starter, the alternator, everything's identical, so you save on costs that way. The only thing that changes are the, the components needed to increase the stroke. And then after a few years, they found that they could make a six-cylinder the same way they did a narrow six, so we have a three ninety I and a three ninety IS, and then we have the wide six cylinder, the five twenty and the five twenty IS. So now we have eight engines from ninety seven horsepower up to two hundred horsepower. So we have a narrow four low and high compression, the wide four low and high, and then the, the six the same way. And then we take those and like the re- reverse rotation engine I mentioned, we cre- created that for a helicopter, and we also can take the RPM to three thousand five hundred RPM and Another 20 horsepower out of it, and that's good for a helicopter. And then we've got a couple of other variations. We even have one engine for drones. It's a normally aspirated engine, and it's cruising 12 hours a day at 24,000 feet. And the way they do that is it's got a really high compression ratio. It takes off on part throttle, and then as they climb, the computer adds throttle. And because the ECU knows the ambient air pressure and the air temperature, it's able to advance the timing and lean the mixture and they can go to twenty-four thousand feet and they're actually cruising on around thirty-five horsepower. So it's a hundred horsepower engine at sea level and they're cruising at altitude on substantially less power. So there's there's a lot you can do with the ECU. It's a lot of fun.
3: So Robert, just a simple version of these engines. I stands for injected and S means it's a stroker engine.
2: Well that <clears throat> the S I don't know if it necessarily means stroker, but it's the higher compression model. So the 350i is the same stroke as the 350IS, but the S needs the is the higher compression.
0: Gosh,
3: wish it would have made uh, a C instead of an S.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, Robert, w- when you're talking about the four-cylinder line, what is the weight difference when you go from the lowest horsepower variant to the biggest horsepower variant?
2: 13 pounds. So we go from 100, 160 pounds to 173 plus the oil cooler.
0: Okay, so really not much extra weight. And is the cost substantially different between the cheapest engine and the most expensive engine?
2: To go from an I to an IS is about $1,000 more. To go from the 260 to the 350 is pr- probably about $3,000 more.
0: Okay, so so there maybe is a, a financial benefit to going with the, the smaller and the lower output engine. What I was really thinking was, Just based on those stats, if it's only going to cost me a little bit extra weight and I'm going to get a whole ton more power, I would think that the 350IS would be your number one selling engine. Is that what you find?
2: Yeah, the 350IS in the U.S. is definitely the best selling engine. It fits. It's just in a nice niche. You know, you got the Rotax at 100 horsepower and Jabru at 80 horsepower. And so the the 350IS at 130 horsepower. Now, keep in mind the 130, the red line, and the stated horsepower is at 3,300 RPM. And that's the engine they modeled it after. The helicopter engine I mentioned earlier was a Jabiru. And so a couple of things. One is they targeted the power band, the same as the Jabiru, and the the motor mount is the same as the Jabiru. And so the 130 horsepower realistically in a Sonics is really like a 125 horsepower engine because it's most efficient around 2,800, 2,900 RPM, and the power there is about 125. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's known also to the thirty three hundred though, is just a, is a five minute limit, I believe, isn't it?
2: Well, the manual says that, but it's really not because the the engine itself is running in helicopter at thirty five hundred RPM all day, and the designer said that these the mechanics of these engines could easily run four thousand RPM all day long. The a little bit of history, one of the early members of the team wrote the initial manual and he's the one that personally created and wrote into the manual the the five minute limit. So it's not a real Limitation, not a hard limit. Good to know. No, but the it really doesn't matter because the, from a practical standpoint, propellers don't like to go much more than twenty eight hundred, so it's really a non issue.
1: That sounds like uh, really a, a good replacement for a thirty three hundred Jabiru.
2: Yeah, the well. engine is about the same weight, maybe a little bit lighter than the Jabiru. It's a little bit wider. Jabiru the six is pretty narrow engine. It's a What's nice about the six-cylinder Jabiru is it's remarkably smooth because of the six-cylinders. The, the four-cylinder UL power with the multi-point fuel injection is so smooth that it really sounds and feels like a six-cylinder engine. So once it's running, it sounds a lot like the Jabiru, but the, uh, the cowl could be an issue. And the propellers, because we have four pistons, we have a lot stronger piston pulses so you can't use the same prop as you can on a Jabiru. So you have to be careful. And if you do have an existing prop, so if a guy's got a 3,300, he can't just swap props. He's got to call the prop manufacturer and see if that same prop will work or get a new prop. I, I,
1: just real quick, I, I, I assume like the the, the, uh, the crankshaft length, so the length of the engine for the prop would not be near. And so we, there'd be some either prop uh, hub Adjustment or a cowling adjustment?
2: The prop flange on the UL power is removable and we have four different sizes. The standard is two inches. We have a one inch, a two inch, three inch, and four inch. So, subject to the CG. Ideally, and I haven't done it, we haven't done it with the Sonics. I don't know if you pulled the 3300, presuming the 3300, your CG is perfect. And if you leave the mount on and you put the UL power on, I don't know how close the CG would be. But you could adjust the prop position by changing the prop flange and go to a three or four inch prop flange and move the prop, you know, probably to about where it was with the Jabra. Sonex may have done the analysis, you know, the factory. So I'm not sure. We focus more on installing engines on new airplanes. We haven't done much in terms of replacement because there's just not, in the amateur built experimental, there's just not as many guys replacing engines as there are guys building new airplanes.
1: Well, some of us have been running. Uh, I've been running Jabberu for five years, and uh, I'm just keeping options open. If my Jabberu uh, gives up on me, um, do I do like Gary did and and go with a, a UL? If it's a direct swap out, that'd be great. But you know, that's kind of pie
2: in the sky. The answer is yes. Switch to UL power. The second part, <laughs> I don't know the answer is. <laughs> but, but it's. I mean, it's easy enough to find out. The, the installation manual is an awesome. Uh, document it's really easy to read it's about 60 pages but there's lots of pictures and uh, it's got the dimensions early on in the in the manual you can see the dimensions of the engine so you could check the width compared to the Jabru to see if your cowl might work and the whole pattern on the mount lines up sometimes we have the flywheel on the back of the engine on some mounts some Jabru mounts our flywheel hits the Jabru mount so you might have to modify the mount and then you could calculate the same drawing as mentioning with the dimensions, it has the CG noted, so you can uh, compare the CG of the UL with the CG of the Jabru and then do some quick calculations to see how you, you know, with the same mount, if you if you might be able to swap it out, and then maybe just modify the cowl. Well,
1: of course, my Jabru is running great right now, but you know, never know.
2: Yeah, jabrews are awesome engines. the The biggest issue with Jabru, Roger at Zenith is a good. Example, he tells guys that are installing a brand new six-cylinder Jeppru, but he gives the same advice to to any any engine, and that is just do on your first flight, do the shortest possible flight, stay as tight as you can, do a super tight pattern, take off, fly around the pattern, and land. Don't do anything else, even if everything's working perfectly. Just fly around the pattern, come back, land, pull the cow off, and check everything out. What what the tendency is, or what happens, guys have issues cooling. <laughs> the Jabiru and it's easy to solve, you know, by pulling the baffle off and adjusting the airflow and stuff. But the problem, or a typical, common problem, is that they will overheat the engine during the break-in period, which is the absolute worst time to overheat an engine. And so they develop problems early on, and they just never make it to overhaul. But if if you get your cooling set up early on with the Jabiru it's got plenty of power. It's a smooth engine. It's a nice engine, and and so they work really well.
0: So, Robert, digging through some of the specs, you covered a bunch of these already. But tell us just a little bit more about the fuel injection and the uh, the engine control unit, what all it does to the engine.
2: basically on the on the engine there are uh, some sensors. There's an oil temperature sensor, and these are all feeding to the ECU. There's an air manifold air temperature sensor, there's an ambient air pressure sensor, and then there's a throttle position sensor. And not only does it know the position of the throttle, it knows if it's moving, which direction, and how rapidly, so it can anticipate the fuel requirements. So, if you're cruising along and all of a sudden you give a full throttle to climb, the ECU knows not only does it need more power, more fuel because it wants more power, it's going to need more fuel to cool it because it's with that much power, it's going to get hot. So, it gives it extra fuel. And so, the ECU is able to, given those. That information. Another example of benefit is that if you're taking off at a high uh, elevation airport, it knows the air temperature and the air pressure. And so it can calculate effectively the density altitude and adjust for it. So not only does it lean the mixture, it advances the timing. So up to about 8,000 feet, we still get near sea level performance because it's able to advance the timing enough to compensate for it. So all of that's real nice. And then in the cockpit, all you have is the throttle, there's no primer. No choke, no carburetor heat, and no mixture. It's just the throttle because the ECU is compensating for all those other things. With the oil temperature sensor, it knows if the engine's cold, it chokes it. If it's hot and you're at high altitude, if you've ever tried to start a fuel-injected engine at at Denver or Grand Junction or any of those airports in Colorado, you stop for fuel and your engine's hot and you get fuel, you get back in the plane and you try to start it and you kill the battery. With the the ECU, it, it does all that for you and it starts right up. I can it's attest certainly. to that.
3: It's a very easy starting engine. Also, it also has dual uh, hall sensors for the crank position, too, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, those are. there's actually two different purposes. One of those is sensing top dead center, and the other is determining which cylinder to fire. So they actually have two different purposes, but they're identical sensors. And then we have an option where you can get a dual ECU. You get two of everything, so you actually get four of those sensors. And then you get two oil temperature, two air temperature, two throttle position, then two ECUs and two complete wiring harnesses. You have a totally redundant system.
3: Well, let's just talk about safety a little bit, if that's okay, Jeff. Um, sure. Just give us your perspective then from the UL side. Let's say you have a, a sensor failure. How does your, your ECU handle that?
2: It depends which sensor it is. If it's the oil temperature, air temperature, throttle position sensor, it, it fails to the rich mode and so you continue to run but you just run rich not knowing the computer not knowing exactly what's happening it's just kind of a fail safe if you have the single ecu system there's two single points of failure either one of the hall sensors um and they're not mechanical they're just a. it's a magnetic pickup yeah it's a yeah it's i don't even know if it's magnetic pickup or if it's just like an eddy current but it's sensing the motion as it goes by the insert on the on the uh, on the camshaft uh gear. And so and then the other is the ECU itself. And so all of the other sensors have a, uh, a failsafe and then like the the injectors a lot of people ask compared to some of the other engines they have two injectors per cylinder. On the four-cylinder engine you can disconnect a sensor I mean an injector and you still got plenty of power to fly. One guy even landed in He said his engine was running a little bit rough, but he didn't know what it was. And it turned out one of his injectors was disconnected, so he was flying on three cylinders, and he didn't even know it.
3: And you have a couple of ingenious options to help monitor that, don't you? Such as a uh, caution light as well as also some software that you could use.
2: Yeah, the the so-called check light you install on the panel, there's a wire that comes out of the ECU, and you just connect it to an LED And the light comes on if a sensor fails or becomes disconnected or something. So that doesn't tell you specifically which sensor, but it tells you that a sensor is is not working. And you can kind of troubleshoot it without the software. The oil temperature sensor is bad. It's harder to start the engine if the throttle position sensor is bad. Then you just barely move the throttle and it runs rough for a second until it smooths out because it doesn't know what you're doing. And then the uh, the software. Uh, is a program you can connect put on your laptop and connect to the ECU. and the, the early version you could not, but the current version you can actually fly with the laptop and the plane can connect it and you can and you can see what the ECU is saying. So you can see the air pressure, you can see the throttle position, you can see the RPM, you can see the oil temperature, all of those things. and you can ascertain if you if you do have the check light, then you can look and see uh, which sensor it is that's not working properly and get it replaced.
3: But regardless, the engine just continues to hum right along,
2: just a little bit richer fuel burn. Correct. And with the dual ECU option, it's, a, it's an expensive option. And so, what I tell people is um, if I'm flying day VFR in a light sport airplane, I'll go with the single ECU system. If I'm going to fly a lot of IFR or at a lot at night, or if I'm going to do long sections of flying on a regular basis over water, or trees or mountains, then I'll opt for the dual ECU system because it's it's definitely worth it in that case. It's, it's basically free life insurance or inexpensive life insurance.
0: Robert, let's talk about uh, some of the accessories for the engine. I think you covered a couple of these things, but what do you get when you open up the engine crate when it comes from from you and what do you have to source separately?
2: The engine comes in the box. It's a complete ready-to-run engine and the price includes. Everything except the, uh, the oil cooler. And we have an oil cooler as an option. But um, our preference is to get a, not from UL Power, but get from Aircraft Spruce or somebody in aviation grade oil cooler because they're just built to a higher standard and they're pressure tested. And, and the same way with the oil lines and fuel lines. And so basically get everything you need except the oil cooler, oil lines, and fuel lines. And then options that I recommend to people. Second fuel pump kit. It, you get the second pump and the second pre-filter and a little bracket to hold them. It's a couple hundred bucks. And then also a, uh, the oil cooler connection kit. Not the oil cooler, the lines itself, but we have a thermostat that attaches to the engine. So all those add up to about $600. And then to put it on the plane, if, you're, if you've are if you just got you know, up to the firewall, then firewall forward kit-wise, it's actually very simple. You need the, the mount, the cowl, and the prop is about it, and then the oil cooler. It's a very, very simple installation.
0: So the first pump comes as part of your accessory kit, and then the second one would be optional? Correct. Okay, what about the engine baffle system?
2: The baffles come with the engine, and then you trim it to height, and then you can either build your own little cap to put on top of it so it's enclosed, or you can put the rubber trim on it that that meets up with the cowling.
0: Is that a metal system or a fiberglass one?
2: It's metal. It's it's actually pretty nice. And here's an example of the company. Just maybe one or two guys started to get cracking, you know, it's traditional around the, the screws where the baffle attaches to the engine. And so they overnight redesigned it and put a really, really thick, real nice doubler where the screws go through. So since they've done that, we haven't seen any cracking in the baffles, which is just awesome.
3: Yeah, I noticed that doubler too. Yeah. I think another important uh option that you have too has to do with the uh the alternator power doesn't it or stator
2: power however you want to call it it was nice the alternator does not have a field it's got magnets and so you could start the engine turn off the battery and the engine will still produce the standard for the four is the 30 amp alternator and then it goes from the alternator three phase ac to a regulator rectifier so it converts it to 12 volt dc uh the, there's one issue um on the 12 volt on the 30 amp system We've noticed there's some, uh, it's a little bit more difficult. Some of the components are automotive and airplanes vibrate a lot more than cars do. And so like a knock sensor, for instance, a lot of people ask the knock sensor why we don't have a knock sensor. And it's because it doesn't work on airplanes because there's too much vibration. So one of the things we've been noticing just recently, and we're not even sure, but on the uh, the regulated rectifier for the 30 amp system, uh, The connector is an automotive-style connector, and we're thinking it might be from the vibration. We're seeing some failure at the connector. So we're actually thinking, Gary, to to make the uh, 50-amp alternator, which is an option on the four-cylinder engine, it's standard on the six-cylinder. The regulator rectifier is a totally different design than the 50-amp system. So we're actually thinking of just going to 50-amp, the standard on the the four-cylinder as well, to get away from that issue.
3: So no problems with the 50-amp regulator?
2: No, no. And uh, here's an example of uh, some cost savings. How they attempt when they design the engine, <clears throat> the alternator is actually the same style alternator that's used on a Harley Davidson motorcycle. <coughs> so the parts are readily available, and you could as a as a replacement part if your alternator failed, you could get it from a, a Harley Davidson shop if you wanted to.
1: Roberts, so what what RPM? I have you know I have the Jabbero with the permanent
2: magnet alternator uh,
1: stock. Um, It takes about uh, 2,600 RPM or so before it starts charging. Is yours the same way, or is it um, charging from a low RPM?
2: It's much lower. I don't know where it starts to kick in, but you're right. They're really generators. They're not alternators, and so it takes RPM before they start to produce power, Um, but it's, it's probably more around 1,200 RPM. It starts to actually produce pretty good power, but it's definitely... Uh by the time you're up to two thousand RPM, you're definitely producing some good power.
3: I see charging even at uh idle for me, but that idle we're talking about a thousand, eight hundred to a thousand. So I, I haven't noticed any charging issues in mine.
2: You get the high elevation thing, so the electrons move faster too. Well that's that's the sweet part. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, it's just Gary moving so much faster than his previous engine <laughs>
2: mods. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Robert, uh, you mentioned the, the mounting pattern is the same as the Jabiru. Does that mean that you recommend any 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 airplane that has a Jabiru mount that you just use that existing mount? Or do you recommend that they go buy a UL Power specific mount from somebody, from you or from another company? Or how does that work?
2: Just uh, general, not Sonic-specific, um, if somebody has a plane or already has a jabru mount, I suggest they first, before they have the engine, look in the manual and see if it looks like it's going to work from a weight and balance standpoint and also from a dimension standpoint. Not so much the whole pattern, but the, the flywheel that I mentioned earlier. And then if, if they've got the engine, they can just put it on the mount and see if it's going to work. A couple of guys have modified, used the jabru mount, but modified it so that we clear the flywheel. And then Sonic specific, um, Sonic's the company has gone to the effort to look and see. So our agreement with Sonex is uh, the on the One X, they're not offering any solution. So the One X, we have a mount for that. And the 260 fits in the Sonics Cal. The 350, a couple of guys have installed 350s on the One X and they're cruising like 180 miles an hour. It's awesome. And uh, that one, the couple of guys have just modified the They're and put cheeks on it, or they just cut holes in, and let the heads poke out the sides of the cowl. And then on the uh, the Legacy model, the 260 fits with no problem. And I think it works on the Sonics mount, but I'm not positive. But that's just a phone call to Sonics to verify it. And then the 350 fits inside the cowl, same way I'm not sure on the mount. But on the B model, uh sonics was was real clear they said on the b model uh, they've got the mount and the cowl that work with the 350 but they actually do not have one that works with the 260 and i'm not exactly sure why if it was a cg issue or something else so on the on the b models they're really promoting the 350 so if somebody calls me and says they've got a b model and they want to put a 350 in it i direct them to sonics and they actually buy the engine and the mount and cowl and pop everything from Sonics. If they have a legacy model, then they then we have a mount solution for them. And then I think we also have a cowl, but I'm not positive, but I think the Sonics cowl works with the 260, and then you can modify it to work with the 350. And so working with market Sonics, we've got a solution for all the, the different the Sonics models, except for that subsonics thing. That one's a little bit harder to re-engine.
0: <laughs> well, when UL Power comes out with a good uh, replacement for the PBS turbojet, let me know because I might be
2: interested. <laughs> well, I don't know. The One X is pretty stinking fast with the 350IS on it. It might be <laughs> close to the subsonic.
3: You said about 100. Well, you know, Robert, indicated or true?
2: Uh, I think true, but I'm not sure. Still pretty good. Yeah, Go yeah, on, Robert, off. I'm
1: I, I, I'm converting to a B model. I have the Jabiru 3300. I'd be more than willing to do some market research for you guys at UL if you send me a 350 IS.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we get a, It's funny, we get so many calls. I would say uh, two emails a week. A guy says, well, I'm designing this new plane and I'm going to turn it into a kit and I'm going to need 100 engines the first year, 500 engines each year after that. Give me a free engine and I'll put it on my prototype. And so, so what we do is we say, you know what? That's a great idea. Give us a free airframe and we'll put a UL power on it.
1: No, I'm, I'm just saying just one engine. I don't need 100. Just one.
2: <laughs> and,
1: uh, you know, you can come out and help me put it on and uh, take the measurements and uh, I'll keep it if it's really good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I it'd be a fun project if you do if you do want to do it or try it at some point. The, the thing we got to be careful or mindful of is we've got to work, work with uh, Sonics to make sure that we, we keep them happy.
0: Robert, you mentioned uh, props. So tell us what, what types of props are recommended? What, what are people flying successfully?
2: Uh, Worldwind is making props for us. Uh, Sense is making props for us. Prince, Cato in the US. And then in Europe, we've got GT, MT. Oh boy, there's a couple of other ones. that. And then out of China now, we got uh, help me on this one. I think it's Sterna. Does that sound familiar?
3: Mm, not to me but basically you're running composite as well as wood props
2: yeah and then any of the wood prop companies cato could make a prop for us or Sensenic makes wood props and basically what somebody if somebody calls me and says i've got such and such an airplane i'll just direct him to the prop companies and then my partner ray in georgia um i focus on the engines and he's doing more of the firewall forward kit stuff so if there's a uh we First time we get a phone call from somebody who says, I have an ABC airplane and da-da-da-da, I want to put your engine on We call the ABC airplane company and say, one of your customers wants to put our engine on it. You want to do a firewall forward kit. If they say yes, then we work with them. If they say no, then we evaluate the market and decide if we want to do it ourselves. Because it takes the, the cowls. The mounts are easy. The cowls are, are really incredible. It's just incredible. I think it's the hardest part of the airplane to make successfully. Ray's taking it upon himself to do all of the firewall Ford kits for the vans aircraft, so he's got the, the mounts and the cowls for the twelve, six, seven, eight, nine, and I think that's it. Uh, Dick Van Gruzman himself asked us to please not do the, the the fourteen or the ten because our engines are so light. He didn't want the engine stuck way out forward of the of the airframe because it affects the aerodynamic balance of the airframe. So we haven't done either of those airplanes. And so uh, Ray's got good relationship with all the prop companies. And so if somebody calls and says they they already have a prop. I either say call the prop company or call Ray. He may have the history on that prop to see if it will work with our engine.
0: Yeah, but just the list that you rattled off—that's all the the normal props that light sport guys are flying anyway. So it doesn't sound like there's any that they really need to avoid.
2: But there's a couple. Some guys will call and They they grew up in ultralights and they're slowly working their way up into bigger airplanes. And so Duke traditionally did not make props for us they just recently started paying attention to u all power and then there's a couple of the it traditionally you know, they work on rotax but they're more the companies grew up with ultralights and then expanded into the 100 horsepower rotax and so some of those props guys already have and they want to put on you all power and it's just not just not right the right thing to do
0: right mm-hmm well, let's talk about the fuel requirements. So you mentioned lead after several hundred hours will start to build up. But just what are the approved fuels and then what do you recommend people do?
2: I try to have a conversation with somebody. And California, for instance, it's almost impossible to get 93 octane unleaded fuel. And so there I really recommend the I models. And if it's just not enough power, then they can step up to the next larger <clears throat> displacement engine but go at the I model. So, for instance, we can go from a, if they can't do the 350 IS, we have the 390 I, which is 140 horsepower to 600 engine, but they can use the 91 octane. The problem is you gain 50 pounds because the engine is quite a bit heavier. But then you could go up to the 520 I, which is 70 pounds heavier, which is a lot, but you gain, you know, 70 horsepower. And so that's part of the discussion. If they can't do, if they don't want to take the larger engine, the I model, so many airplanes. I mean, think back on your flying career. Almost every airplane that I've ever flown, as soon as I'm off the ground, I'm coming back on the throttle and lowering the RPM. And so, really, you have more than enough power than you need. And I, I live real close to Zenith, so I use them a lot in discussion, and I do a lot of work with them. They've got the, the 350IS and now a 350i in one of their demo airplanes and they have the 350 is and another demo plane and before they get full throttle and those gears off the ground and as soon as they're airborne you know they're reducing the throttle so they get better angle of climb so they get good visibility and so you could step down to the next lower horsepower engine you don't have to take off in 300 feet you know 95 percent of the flights that zenith companies or pilots owners are doing are off of paved runways And you don't need to be off the ground in 300 feet. I mean, you go from a 350IS to a 350I, and instead of taking off in 300 feet, you're airborne in 310 feet. Does it really matter? And so, um, with the I, you can use 91 octane, which is available in every state, and a lot of airports even have um, 91 octane automotive gas. Now you can use Hunter Low Lead, and if you if you are using the lead, there's different products you can use. Decalin. Or TCP, and a lot of people swear by Marvel Mystery Oil. And they chemically, well, the TCP and the Declan cause the lead either to pass through the system and go out the tailpipe or it goes into the oil. And then you change the oil more frequently. And so there's actually less lead that remains in the combustion chamber. What happens is the lead builds up on the exhaust valve. And then over time, the exhaust valve doesn't seat properly. And that's how it transfers its heat to the head, is when it seats. So if it's not seating properly, it's not transferring all the heat, so it never cools down, so it just stays too hot, and then it starts to burn around the edges, and then you start to lose compression. Now, the lead's really easy to clean off. So if you, as soon as you notice you have a problem, you can pull the heads off. And there's six bolts that hold the head on. You could have all the heads off in a couple of hours and clean them up and put them back on, and and you'd have no problem. You could soda blast them or just scrape them with a plastic tool or something and, and get rid of it. The other thing with the Marvel mistro oil, the guys that use it swear by it. They say it, it lubricates the combustion chamber so the lid can't stick to it. And so the result is that it just passes through the exhaust pipe. I personally haven't don't have any experience with the Marvel Mistral Oil, but the guys that do it, they just swear by it. And so they actually put it in their fuel when they when they put hundred low lid and they actually add some marvel mistro oil. And the declan and T C P same way you add fuel, you put one one ounce of product for ten gallons of fuel. So it's really not that cumbersome.
0: Well, I've heard a lot about Marvel Mystery Oil, but I think that what they're really doing is they're putting it in oak casks and aging it and drinking it like bourbon.
2: <laughs> that sounds good, too.
0: <laughs> what about ethanol in your MoGas?
2: Yeah, you, you switch from alcohol to alcohol. I see that transition. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> uh, the alcohol is fine in the engine, the ethanol, up to 15%. The real issue with ethanol is corrosion in the fuel tanks, uh, uh, You know, we're trained as pilots that you really, when you park the plane, you should really fill the tanks because any condensation that builds up in the tank, you'll get moisture in the water. Ethanol is even worse. Ethanol goes out of the tank and aggressively searches for water in the air and brings it back and brings it home like a date and keeps it in the tank. And again, it's real, real easy to get corrosion inside the fuel tank. So that that's the bigger problem, but but if you are going to use ethanol, you need to make sure the fuel lines, you know, and the airframe, everything is is ethanol friendly. But the engine itself works fine with ethanol.
0: Do they have a, a limit, like ten percent ethanol or twenty percent, or do they miss not? Yeah,
2: in? the stated limit is fifteen percent, but I don't know. I don't know if they really tested it to that or not. But usually in the U.S., it's ten percent ethanol is the highest I've seen.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then uh, talk a little bit about fuel consumption.
2: It's 0.05 gallons per horsepower per hour. So if you're cruising at 100 horsepower, it's 5 gallons per hour. If you're cruising at 200 horsepower, it's 10 gallons per hour. So the 350 IS, realistically, like in the cruiser, what are you seeing, Gary? About 6.5 gallons an hour? Oh, no, less than that. Uh, I'm in the 5 to 6 range. Oh, that's awesome. What do you cruise at? What's your speed?
3: Uh, even at well, even at twenty eight hundred, uh, as as for a continuous RPM, I was getting around six, maybe six point one. If oh, I'm just good. killing, if I'm killing time in the neighborhood, not going anywhere, I'll drop it back down to about twenty six hundred or so, and it's about five point three, I think.
2: The yeah. uh, just aircraft guys when they created the super stole, first they went with the Rotax, and then they they put the UL power on it. The first one they stretched, and they went from the hundred horsepower Rotax. They stretched the empennage two feet and they put a hundred and eighty our five uh, twenty I, the hundred and eighty horsepower in it, and they noticed that on the cross country flight, what what's a cross country flight in a superstall? Is that a ten mile flight? <laughs> <laughs> they uh, they said compared to the Rotax, they average with the hundred and eighty horsepower, so eighty more horsepower, they're only burning one gallon per hour more fuel. And it runs pretty rich you know a lot of guys want to know is it lean of peak or richard peak da and the way they do it is they just on the test engine i've seen pictures and videos where they've got they're just totally abusing the engine you know the mufflers glowing red hot and the exhaust pipes the tailpipes are beyond red hot and, and so they're testing it and they're adjusting everything and so they're not focusing on rich of peak or Lena peak they're looking at a combination of things you know Based upon the parameters, is this, you know, the sensor sending the signal to the ECU, is this person cruising or are they doing aerobatics? And then based on that, they tell it what to do. And so in some cases, it's very, very rich. and In other cases, it's very efficient. So like the example I gave earlier where you're cruising along and all of a sudden you go to full throttle, the ECU, not only does it say it needs more fuel to run, it's going to need more fuel to cool it because it's going to get hot at, at that throttle position. So it adds extra fuel. So it's not necessarily lean of peak or of peak. It's, it's whatever the designer felt was appropriate for those combinations based upon the parameters when they tested it. Keep in mind also, a lot of the guys that think flying lean of peak is the way to go, you actually lose some power <clears throat> when you do that. So you may be burning less fuel, but you're, you're probably going to end up flying a lot slower too. Yeah, but sometimes there's
3: a trade-off there too for endurance and range. You know, yeah, the small yeah. amount of, of forward speed that you're going to move is, is markedly made up by the endurance and range aspects.
0: Yep. Robert, shifting gears just a little bit. So, as you described with the ECU and the fuel injection, the, the UL power is an electrically dependent engine. So, how do, you, how do you handle that where you have to have electricity to keep this thing running?
2: Well, the, uh, you can turn on the battery to start it. And then if the battery's not good, it won't start. So you know you've got a good battery. And then as soon as it starts, you could turn off the battery and the alternator puts out sufficient power. Most of us are flying with EFIS. And so you can set a, a low voltage warning at a fairly high voltage, somewhere between battery voltage and alternator voltage. So as soon as if the alternator fails, you'll get a warning. So you immediately know that the alternator's failed and you're flying on battery power. With a fully charged 12-volt battery, you can fly for about 45 minutes. And if you want more time, you can install a second battery to double that. And then if the battery fails, you can fly off the alternator all day long. But my recommendation to people is if you know your battery has failed, then then go ahead and land land at the next airport.
0: So what is the, the the power demand that the engine itself has? You said uh, a, a battery will last 45 minutes. Is that 10 amps or 5 amps or uh, what is that?
2: It's 14 amps with both coils on and a pretty high power setting. And so my okay. recommendation to people is if you know the alternators fail, you can turn off one of the coils and save quite a bit of power that way and then reduce the power subject to your your power needs. And then... Uh, the lower the RPM, the less voltage you're using for the ignition, and so you can extend the time. But 45 minutes is a, a real safe number.
0: Okay. So if you have a 30-amp alternator, then half of that, the first half of your output, is essentially keeping the engine running.
2: Correct. Now, we did, okay. uh, we did tests with Zenith on their 650, which is the first one they did, the UL power. Uh, we just did the We turned everything on, landing lights, radios, everything. And we were drawing right at 30 amps. It was 29-something, so including the engine and everything they could turn on. They were, they were right at the limit. Now, some guys install, you know, second glass panel and different things. So we had the 50-amp alternator as an option. Or
3: the biggie item like I did. I put a heated PTO tube in there, so that's the reason I opted <laughs> for a 50-amp.
2: Yeah, you probably have heated seats too, right?
3: Uh, you know, I I won't divulge all of my secrets, but yes, I'm very (laughs)
2: comfortable. Yeah, one guy wanted to install heated seats for his wife, so he went with the 50 amp alternator. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's probably you and I forgot. Yeah, maybe. (laughs)
3: Um, I like the idea, though, you know, uh, I I use a dual battery, uh, dual batteries in parallel so I can get, you know, either one system. So I actually have three sources of electricity at any one time. Uh, but an excellent point, though, that you made about turning off uh, one of your coils, um, as we know with the Sonics is, and especially the AeroVs, when you have a, a Magneto-driven system versus and a secondary ignition coil system, that ignition coil system really eats up a lot of power on ground. And we've had a lot of people that taxi too long on the ground with both systems on and, and, and basically kill their battery pretty quickly doing that.
2: Yes, <laughs> especially at the lower RPMs. Yeah. How do you have your <clears throat> you have two battery switches and one for each battery?
3: I do, yes. and mm-hmm. uh, I'm using the lithium ion batteries and source. They also come with the built-in fault circuitry. Uh, so I've got three idiot lights that can possibly stare at me, one for the ecu one for each battery.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> I like those <clears throat> the new the battery technology that's coming out or has come out recently and as is progressing, it's just awesome. it's we've never had that information before, so. It's nice. What I tell people is if you're concerned, it's nice to know before you head out over a body of water or over a bunch of trees, it'd be nice to know that your battery is fully charged in case the alternator fails. And so if you're able to turn off the alternator, you could put a switch in the circuit so you could turn off the alternator and check the battery voltage and then turn the alternator back on just to verify you've got a a nice fully charged battery
0: so, Robert, just a point of clarity here, um, the alternator is not like an internal lighting coil that will keep the engine running. The alternator is simply just recharges your battery. You need to supply bus voltage back to the engine. It's not totally self-contained. The engine itself is an electrically dependent engine. So the burden is on you as the builder to ensure that you provide an uninterrupted source of electrical power to keep that engine running. And that's just a task that you need to recognize. When you design your installation, you have to think that part through because it is a necessity to keep the engine running.
2: The easy way to look at it is the ECU and the fuel pump need electricity for the engine to run. And if you lose electricity to either one of those, the engine will quit. And you can get that electricity straight from the voltage regulator, which is getting power straight from the alternator. And so it's exactly what you said. You just, as you're installing it, you need to be mindful of that it's a lot simpler than, than it sounds.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: The one thing that I notice because we have an ECU and most airplanes don't have an ECU, I get a call that something's not right. That airplane's vibrating too much. Oh, it must be the ECU. Oh, I'm using too much fuel. It must be the ECU. Oh, I'm not getting enough current. It must be the ECU. It's always the ECU. And you know what? It's like rarely the ECU. Now, coincidentally, there is, we've just discovered a, a bug in the most recent update and it is in fact the ecu and gary has one of those ecus so i have to be really careful when i say it's never the ecu
3: (laughs) well i'm glad i could help robert (laughs) i always like to be a pioneer here in this stuff i
0: guess
3: (laughs) let's get to service guys uh first of all i'm going to give an unabashed uh round of applause to Robert and UL Power. They have been excellent as far as providing service and technical support and helping me find my numerous gremlins that I always seem to find. Um, that being said, let's talk about if someone really does start to have, oh, first of all, parts. And I got the answer already, Robert, but I'll let you expand that. So this is a Belgium engine, but what do we have to do to source parts?
2: Early on when I started, I traveled to OEMs and I traveled to air shows and I used to carry a suitcase full of parts, and I would just guess on which parts people might possibly need. And I got lucky. I never, never, I always had the part I needed to ship. And so I would interrupt, stop what I was doing, and run and find a post office or UPS store and and get it shipped. But fairly early on, I talked to Scott Wick at Wick's Aircraft Supply, and he agreed to do uh, all Power in North America. So any all parts for you, all power, you can get from Wix Aircraft. They're open six days a week, and they get stuff shipped out overnight. If they don't have it in stock, they can get it shipped from Belgium. Uh, If it's urgent, they can ship it that night from Belgium or that day from Belgium, which is our night. And it'll be here in the day, you know, two days after. Uh, Wix, their, their Midwest company, we're trying to build up our own parts supply as well. So if Wix isn't able to support somebody, we can get that get it to them directly, or we can have Belgium ship it to them. And now then, just recently, uh, Ray traveled to Belgium, and on behalf of KLN Aviation, which is the company in Sandersville, Georgia, uh, they're basically my partner on UL Power. And so we can now overhaul, with the factory's approval, we can now overhaul any of the UL Power engines in the U.S., Whereas before we could just do a top overhaul, so now we can do a full full overhaul. And what's nice about the UL power is they're very expensive components, so the purchase price is is a little bit higher than most engines because the components are expensive. But from a maintenance and a overhaul standpoint, the rule of thumb for a Lycoming, the overhaul cost is one half of the purchase price of a new engine. Our overhaul costs are more like one third or maybe even one quarter of the purchase price. So we can overhaul a. a 350is, 130 horsepower engine, for about $8,000. Uh, Rotex, the distributors in the U.S., basically recommend that the $19,000 engine cost $17,000 to overhaul it. So they recommend you sell the engine to somebody who put on an airboat or something, but just buy a brand new engine. And so long term, we're actually able to, to financially beat Rotex and Lycoming and some of the others. And we're also totally fine if somebody wants to overhaul their own engine, we'll sell them the parts and they can do it themselves. We feel the, the more you work on your own engine, the more you'll learn about it, the more you'll know about it, the, the better m- mechanic you'll be and the better pilot you'll be because you'll understand your engine and you'll, like all the electrical issues we'll t- we were talking about, the more you know about the engine, the better pilot you are. So um, that's our philosophy on the, on the maintenance and the service of the engines.
3: Well, Robert, I mean, that's good to know. I mean, I've, I've had a deal with, I'm glad you pointed me to Wix, too, just for the other people who are looking at that. If they happen to look at the Wix website, it's not very encompassing of all the parts for UL. But as you told me, if you speak to a guy named, I believe his name is Keith there, he's kind of like the UL guru, I guess. You give them all the UL part numbers and that matches what they use for the Wix part number. And they most likely have it even though they're not listing it online, which was kind of confusing to me to start with. But
2: just, 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 just. It's incredible them. you mentioned that because just overnight, I got a message that Wix is, now has every single UL part on their website. So, oh, that's well, late, I haven't late checked it last news. week, so great. Yeah, they just overnight sent a message to me.
3: So now getting back to the service, I'm glad that you're now able to use overhauls. Is there any chance, perhaps, that you guys might develop uh, a heavy maintenance course for owner builders?
2: Yeah, we can do it the volume probably isn't enough to do a course but if anybody on their own was at the point where they needed some training if we can't do it over the phone then you're certainly welcome to go to Ray's facility and spend however much time with him there and ray has traveled and helped guys do their own installation i've traveled and helped guys do installation one guy bought a 520i and he decided he wanted to make it a 520is so ray traveled to his site with parts in hand and they converted the engine from an i to an is and less than a day and so stuff like that is available too so we can help you and you know help you do it or just teach you how to do it but it's a very easy engine to maintain the other thing is it's very very similar to like an 0200 it just has modern components on it so any a and p with one phone call to, to ray or myself easily do a top overhaul but any of the maintenance is required so there's plenty of capability out there
3: yeah, so far the parts—I mean, parts I've had to replace and maintenance I've done—I really do like the engineering of the UL. Even in something as simple as as the rocker arm geometry and and how easy it is to adjust uh, the valve clearance um, over some of the other engines I worked on, it's just really, really nice. Uh, so yeah. overall, I do really like the engineering aspect of UL. But I was just thinking that you know if I I, I only put a hundred and well, about 80 hours on this engine since I re-engined my plane in the last four months. But if I can get uh, a full year's flight in, I might get that uh, TBO by the end of next year. I might have to split my case. <laughs> <all this morning. laughs> what I could do for uh, for heavy
2: maintenance yeah. service uh, assistance. It, it, the TBO, since you mentioned that, what's interesting, uh, the TBO is just a recommendation. But in some countries, they take the manufacturer recommendation and make it mandatory. What's nice about you all power... The guys that designed the engine that did the race car engines their whole life, they designed for maintenance because they, what they learned was they kept raising the price on their engine because they were getting tired of the business and that we will just price ourselves out of the business and we'll do something else. And it got to the point where they actually got invited to travel to these world famous races on the corporate jet of the owner of the race car. And uh, so as an A lot more convenient. But they designed the engine for maintenance because they were the ones that were being dragged into the pits to maintain the engines during the races. And so the oil pan, just as one example, you can remove the oil pan in about 15 minutes without even removing the exhaust or the muffler. And you can do a really good visual inspection. The way the case is designed, you look, look up inside, you can see the whole camshaft and you can see beyond the camshaft, you can see the connecting rods and everything. And so if you're approaching TBO or you're at TBO and you're oil analysis is good your oil consumption's good temperatures are good compression's good you can do this visual inspection if everything looks good then just put it all back together and keep on flying
3: all right maybe i'll get two years out of this then
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: robert are the valves um hydraulic or are they uh, a manual adjuster like the uh, the earlier Jabros or the vws
2: it's manually adjusted and i should say manually checked you really don't have to adjust them that much and the reason the designer did that was from his race car experience is if you get in at the annual or whenever the inspection is false for the for the valve clearance, pull off the and you're doing the compression check. So doing the valve clearance just adds about thirty seconds to doing the compression check. So when you got a top dead center, you just slide the feeler gauge in and if it's okay you just leave it. The reason they went mechanical is because hydraulic lifters can mask a problem. So something may be breaking. And you don't even know it with the mechanical. If you go in there at the annual and you have four cylinders and one of or eight lifters, one is out of adjustment and you adjust it and you make a note of it. You go back six months, 12 months later and you check it. And they're all good except for that one. And it's out of adjustment again. Then you better start scratching your head and figure out what's going on. If, you know, there's something wrong if you have to adjust the same one more than once in such a short period of time. And it's actually worked to our advantage. One guy found, and we have absolutely no idea how it happened, but the little ball on the end of the push rod just flat out disappeared and it didn't even appear in the oil pan. So we don't know what happened, but uh, just one of his valves, he kept having to adjust and adjust and adjust it. And so we taught him how to pull the push rod out and he discovered the push rod was damaged. If he had hydraulic lifter, it it may have messed that problem problem and he wouldn't even know it until the engine came apart in flight and so the mechanical lifters like that help you identify that there's a problem really early on as soon as the problem starts to manifest itself and they're really really easy to check it's really no problem at all. Have you done yours Gary? Oh several times already yeah Yeah yeah.
1: I I do them on my um, my Jabiru all the time I don't have any problem with that I just was wondering if the UL had gone that way because the Jabiru has gone towards hydraulics
2: yeah I think the hydraulic might operate smoother, and that might be part, i and I don't know for sure, but I think that's why I remember Porsche in the late sixties i think it was when they switched to hydraulic and you could actually hear a difference in the when they were operating uh cost i'll jump I'll jump to cost because I kind of hit on earlier, nobody's asked but our what I've noticed is there's a couple of things one is weight the the lighter the engine, the more expensive it is, and we've definitely got the lightest engine and Corvair's on the other end of the spectrum. Corvair is the least expensive engine, and it's it's the heaviest engine. And so William Wynn and I, we do a lot of engine panel discussions together, and uh, William says to people, says to the crowd, he, he says, basically there's, on the subject of weight, there's two people up here that aren't going to lie to you. One is one is Robert, because he's got the lightest engine by far, and the other one is me, because i got the heaviest engine by far. And so the others are all in between there somewhere. But the result is, between that and the components, it's an expensive engine. So we're, uh, today's market in us dollars, 130 horsepower engines, right about $24,000, but that's complete versus a Rotax at 19,000. You have to really get in and look, you need to add, you know, oil tank, coolant tank, radiator, da da da. I don't know all the components, but you have to add stuff. So the 19,000 quickly becomes like 21 or 22,000 and it's at a hundred horsepower, not 130. So all the engines are fairly close in weight and price. Some of the guys, you have to be careful and maybe Gary can speak to this. There's some guys out there that, that don't tell you, but the engine they're selling you isn't a brand new engine and they don't say that it isn't, but they don't don't say that it is. And so it's a little bit misleading and it's frustrating to me because it's, you know, airplanes are so much fun, but they're just so dangerous as well. And you got to do whatever you can to minimize the risk. And, one of the guys from Belgium was over years ago, an older guy, and he went away and went visiting other booths. And he came back to me and he said, he said, Robert, isn't aren't these guys building these airplanes? Aren't they going to fly them? And I said, yeah. He goes, aren't they going to take their wife with them? I said, yeah. Aren't they going to take their kids and their grandkids? And I said, yeah. And he goes, what are they doing? Why are they putting these car engines from junkyards on their airplanes? And so you know, like the Corvair, William Wynn does a remarkable job in teaching people how to take a old Corvair engine and make it a very safe airplane engine. But there's other engines out there. You just really have to be careful. So do your due diligence, whatever engine you're looking at, whether it's dual power or something else, don't just look at the engine, look at the people behind the engine and do due diligence on the supplier and, and stuff. I mean, it's, it's very easy to enter this business and it's, it's just very scary, so, so do your due diligence. And, if Gary, if you want to add anything, help yourself, but you don't have to.
3: Well, just uh, like I said, do check around. You want to talk to people that actually have the engine that are happy with it. And, it, you know, because not every engine has some problems. I mean, nothing is perfect, just mechanical gizmo. If you can find someone that has had a problem with them, talk to them too, so you can get a really good perspective on, on what some issues might be, what the service is, uh, how the vendors treat you. Uh, so you get past just the sales hype and you find out what's what's really occurring in real life Um, but you know again just another shameless plug I've been you know I've had several different engines now through my planes and uh, Robert I've been very pleased and very happy with with your support as well as UL and Patrick there and the guys I met at uh, Oshkosh this year when I was trying to track down my Gremlin. so you know so far it's it's a great running engine it's got good power reasonable fuel economy and uh, i'm just hoping like i said i'll get many many years of uh, happy flying out of this thing
2: awesome yeah ray and i both if our phone rings we answer it so we don't even usually even know what day it is one guy called me one time and i answered it and he identified himself where my phone did i knew who it was and i said hey don't you know it's Easter and he goes huh yeah i don't celebrate that I'm like no, but I do. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I know I sent you some emails on the weekend too, and never expected a reply. I just wanted to get it off while I was thinking about it. But you know, I was always shocked when you replied right back. But uh, well, so never, many never so hesitate to wait until Monday or something if I have to. If I happen to send something over the
2: weekend while I'm oh, thinking. Oh no, it. so many, so many builders and operators have a real life. You know, they got a job. They're still working and stuff. A lot of them are retired, but a lot of guys are still working, and it's. You know, we try to accommodate them because they're building their plane at night or on the weekend. And if they have a question, if we can get it answered, they can keep on chugging along. If they have to wait a week to get an answer, then that's kind of cumbersome.
3: Yep, it's, it certainly does help. But I was really surprised and grateful, though,
2: just to let you know. That's awesome. I like those shameless Robert, I
3: I just let
1: you know, I I, I ignore Gary's calls after 9 (laughs) p.m. They're always
3: coming in. He ignores them after 9 a.m. too, so I don't even bother calling him anymore.
2: Uh, I I ignore the clock, so I don't know what time it is. Mm -hmm. Any more questions?
0: Robert, I just have one more final, and that is um, if people want to learn more, where are the places they should go? Obviously, your website, and I'll put a link to the website, but are there any uh, community forums or any places that you direct people to go find out and share experiences and things like that?
2: It's funny. I wrote an article for uh, one of the magazines not too long ago, and I told them to just put the byline, I said, by by the UL Power guy, instead of putting my name, because when people see me at air shows, they go, hey, there's the UL Power guy. And I was at Zenith, and Sebastian goes, why did you do that? Nobody knows who the all Power guy is. And so I pulled out my phone, and I said, okay, Google. And I said, who is the UL Power guy? And Google responded it that. Robert Helms is the UL Power guy in North America. <laughs> so uh, you just go to Google and Google UL Power, and you can find us, and there's plenty of stuff. I've tried creating different forums and things, and Facebook and, and stuff, and it just – I done databases, different things, and it's hard to find something that really works. But if you go to ulpower.com, Ray, my partner's listed on there, I'm on there, and then we'll gladly give you, you know, if somebody wants airplane-specific information like a Sonics with a 260, then, you know, we'll subject to the person agreeing to it. We'll give them their contact information and let them talk to each other. If it's a high-elevation airport, we'll find somebody in the similar topographical area so that they can get some personal reference or discussion about the performance at high altitude so uh, our take on things is we'd rather have a happy non-customer than an unhappy customer so we'll our preference is to turn people away if they're not ultimately going to be happy because there's no point in us having an unhappy customer so we'll tell you straight up what the issues are before we enter into any sort of relationship and that's really what you're buying when you buy an engine. It's as long as you keep that plane, you're going to be talking to us about the engine. So, it's really a long-term relationship.
3: Robert, there is one more site. Maybe you can tell me where it's coming from. UL Power News.
2: So uh, I UL got the Power News is South that, African. That, uh, every UL Power dealer has their own Facebook page. UL Power, the company itself in Belgium, created UL Power News. And I don't understand exactly why or, or what its purpose is, but they try to put like press release information on there, and I'm not exactly sure why. And they've also created a troubleshooting guide, that, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense. If there's issues like that, they should be built in right into the maintenance manual. And so there's a couple of you know different different countries, different. Uh, social groups, we all do things differently. And so they do things a little bit differently in Europe. And so we try to coach them on on stuff the way that we're used to it. And some sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. But the UL Power News itself is an official UL Power website. There's another one in the U.S. It's a Facebook page. And I have absolutely no idea why the guy's doing it. But he calls it UL Power Engine Community. And he has nothing to do with UL Power. He's got a long easy. And he loves the engine. But he's modified it so much because he thinks he's smarter than we all are that his engine's never going to run properly. One example is he took the muffler out and took the three-in-one collectors out. He's got a 520, and he's running six straight pipes, and there's absolutely no way he's ever going to get the, the fuel injection and the, everything to balance properly. So right out of the chute, it's not working right. Now he's modified his sensor so that he can adjust the mixture himself. Rather than let the ECU do it, so he's created this Facebook page and he's representing himself as UL Power Engine Community as though he's an official part of UL Power, and it's causing us some grief. And so there's some things out there like that that are unofficial. But if you call me or Ray, then we can we can tell you what the story is, and we'll gladly refer you to somebody else that's in a similar situation that you are, so you can get a good reference.
3: Well, the Fedex system is really a great uh invention i just love it it's just like a car you turn the key you start it and you step on the throttle there's just that's all you do to it and it just really makes flying a joy instead of having to mess mess with the mixtures and and everything else that we've had to do in the
2: past yeah now i'm kind of wondering where you put your throttle that you're stepping on it well you know <laughs> i gotta have enough
3: hands for my beer
2: <laughs> uh yeah yeah the uh has got a beer. club
1: foot and it's it's pretty heavy, so he just like oh. slams
2: it. Yeah, I have been to an air show though, and it was below freezing outside air temperature, and everybody's out in the run-up area waiting there. Just there's like ten airplanes out there, and everybody just standing or leaning against their airplane, waiting to give a demo ride, and not knowing why they're all waiting. We pulled up, and they said, "Oh, let's see how UL Power does." And I said, "Why? What's going on?" And they said, "Nobody can get their engine started; it's too cold." Mm. And so we climbed in the plane and started right up. Because the ECU knew what the temperature was and forty-five psi fuel pressure, it atomizes the fuel, so you don't. There is no issues if the induction air is too cold, and so it started right up. And we gave our demo ride, right and everybody else is sitting on the ground watching us. Yeah.
3: Plus, I throw both of those batteries on for starting all the time, and so it just it just spins that prop like nothing, and it just starts. Yeah, that's
2: start. awesome. Yeah, that's great. Are they earthX or which ones do you have? They are the
3: earthx Yeah.
2: Yeah, I like Earthex. They're awesome. Ray, all one right. time. Gray, one time, speaking of cold weather, in his RV4, he climbed in and cranked it, and it cranked, but it didn't start, and then he couldn't crank it. And the low-voltage protection circuitry kicked in and turned off the battery because it was uh, too low a voltage. Mm-hmm. And X basically said, you know, if you'd let it set for a second, just that process probably warms up the battery enough that you can get it started the second time. But with the lithium batteries, a lot of them are installing low-voltage protection. So in cold weather, they can't automatically shut down. So the second battery is a great idea. Yeah.
0: All right, Robert. Well, I think that really kind of gives us a, a great overview. There's a lot of really good details, and um, I have a much better understanding of the history and the operation and the features. So I appreciate you running us through that.
2: Sure. it's fun. You guys are awesome.
0: And uh, I guess maybe my final question is just off the top of your head – What do you think the total count of engines installed in Sonics airplanes is right now? Oh,
2: boy, it's very low. I bet worldwide there's probably less than 20, but that's just a guess. Um, Okay. What I've I've learned is if the people, even though they're called experimental airplanes, people do not like to experiment. And so using Zenith again as an example, because I'm right there, Zenith has it in their demo plane, but they got like five demo planes. And if they fly the 701, it has the Rotax. So if they build a 701, the person wants a Rotax. They've got the new Super Duty that has the Titan in it. Somebody builds a Super Duty, they put in the Titan. But if they fly the 650 or the 750, it's got UL power. So 90% of the guys put in UL power. And so they're comfortable. So Mark at Sonics, coincidentally, fairly recently said, and he wants to do a demo plane with UL power in it because he believes the engine is a good choice, a good fit. And he, he wants to be able to demonstrate it. And then I'm sure we'll see the members of Sonic's airplanes with UL power flying increase substantially.
3: It's just a matter of support. If, if, if they know they've got good vendor support, uh, I don't think it'll be too much of an issue. It's just when, you know, if, if, especially if you're building your very first plane, you do look to the manufacturer as being, quote, the god of the airplane. And, you yeah. know, it's, there's lots of different options doing things, so, you know, even with... With the Sonics, John Monette, I was asking him how to do something early on, and uh, you know, when well, I was a real, real newbie and neo, neophyte, and he basically gave me the answer any way you want to, which was very disconcerting to me and made me kind of unhappy. But you know, in hindsight, now a little bit more experience, you come
2: come to appreciate that that statement and sentiment. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> you as the manufacturer can do whatever you want. Yeah, the uh, here's another way to look at it. Ray and I will be at Oshkosh, and you know, somebody will say, "Have you done one in such and such airplane?" And we'll say, "You know coincidentally, we're doing it right now, and then they walk away, and the last thing they say is, "Good luck, I hope it works." and it's like, "Huh, the engines have been flying since two thousand two. What do you mean? oh, you hope it works? They view it for some reason. they think the engine's going to perform differently in that airframe, and so it's just a it's a different mindset. I don't know I don't totally understand it, but I've experienced it, so I know it's real
0: Well, it's a good opportunity as people get more familiar and more exposed to u l power engines out in the field. It's a good opportunity to reevaluate what do you want out of your your Sonics and, and go that route. And now that Sonics has really embraced it with the B models, I expect that that will be a popular engine option going forward.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I think it would be a nice choice. It's nice. It's simple. It's easy. It's easy to install. It's easy to maintain. It's easy to operate. It's easy to work on. It just It's it's nice. It's a I think it's a good combination.
0: All right, Robert, uh, thank you again. Uh, appreciate you taking some time and, and uh, really giving us a good talk.
2: You're welcome. Nice talking to you guys. Oh, uh, a couple of couple of things. If you want to put links up for people that we talked about the other day, if you can direct them to the uh, installation manual, when you go to ULPower.com, select the engine, scroll down to manuals, and then the installation manual is a great way to learn about the engines. And then I created a page. It's called FWF uh, fwffirewallforwardkits.com and I've got some information on there. So if you do want to give a couple of links to people, those are some good links that you
0: can tag on to the podcast. Okay, and I will put those in the show notes.
3: Even the manual is a a good resource just to see what's in the engine. It's it's really quite impressive.
2: Yeah, the parts catalog and the installation manual side-by-side are really good, and I really recommend people when they're doing maintenance to have the parts catalog open right next to their workbench on their workbench because in there, You can see what you're looking at, and it's got the torque requirements and any sealant or adhesive requirements. And so the the parts catalog is very helpful.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, with that note, uh, we will wrap this episode up. And as always, you can find the episode on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can find the show notes with those links in it, sonicsflight.com slash four five. Subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app or iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or you can go to the webpage and listen to the file directly off the webpage. We love to get email, so send us your feedback to feedback at sonicsflight.com and let us know what you think, and if you, especially if you have a suggestion for an upcoming topic or you think you have a good lead on an interesting guest, we'd love to talk to him.
3: Yes, but by, as always though, Jeff, all the negative comments go to you. John and I, we get the positive comments, okay? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh. Yeah, I, I think that's the unspoken rule. You guys get the the, the good stuff, and I have to sift through the, uh, the not-so-good stuff. Yeah, I've I only thought,
1: gotten good feedback. <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, Robert, um, I look forward to coming in and seeing you. Uh, I'm not that far away from you in Kansas City, so I'll have to pop in and, and come uh, hang out with you sometime. And uh, the weather is beautiful right now, so get out there and enjoy some great fall flying weather. Have a great evening. Have a good weekend. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon. All right, guys. All right. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. All right, John. Pictures, pictures of uh, of Antarctica. You have a really good idea. I'm going to
1: bring a part, and I'm going to work on it.
0: Yeah, I don't know how much bandwidth they give you, you know, for email and all that. But yeah, send us a picture.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I want
0: to bring you. You may not snow. see it until
1: Thanksgiving, but
3: it'll happen.
0: Bring me back some snow.
1: Uh there'll be plenty.
3: <laughs> not I'm yellow snow. There.
1: The the season is opening. It opened uh, three days ago, and we have still people in Christchurch that have not gotten.